Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today, it's my great pleasure to welcome a friend of mine and someone I've learned a ton from, Meg Hewitt, to the show. Meg, welcome. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Meg, uh, amongst other things, if you read her LinkedIn profile, is a regional manager for retail and consumer goods at Salesforce. Uh, There's really no need for me to describe what Salesforce does. However, I, I do want Meg to address for a moment you know, when you hear retail and consumer goods, you might scratch your head of how does Salesforce sell into that segment. So Meg, before we even go any further, can you just describe that a little bit? Absolutely. I, I can keep it brief, but most people know Salesforce as a basic CRM that you're probably looking at right now. But specifically in retail and consumer goods, we're selling products that you may not be as familiar with. So we think about the life cycle of a customer and think about yourself as a consumer. So everything from awareness, when we're talking about marketing software, all the way through acquisition and and retention. A lot of times that's through a commerce platform that Salesforce has. And then the retention piece carries on to service. So those are just a couple areas that I touch on within my team. Got it. I may have mistakenly understood, I'm sure well, now I think I did mistakenly understand that at Salesforce, the account executive was usually tied to the sales cloud. And then there were like all these product specialists who would support deals around the marketing cloud and the service cloud and so on. Is that is that different in your segment? It is a little different. So we're a newer vertical and Salesforce over time is, is verticalizing. And it's unique because we have tons of resources still, but my team really does carry the bag for all of the products. We do have people that help us sell in certain areas, but Typically, they are running the deals, they're the quarterback, and we're solely bringing in people here and there to help us complete that full picture of what a retail consumer goods company needs. Our topic for the day is really going to be all about making the transition from leading sales development, which Meg did a couple of times, to leading AEs. So both the differences in the skills that you need as an individual to make that managerial transition, but then also what are some of the differences in the characteristics of actually leading SDRs versus leading AEs. Before we get there, we'll do our usual thing, which is to get to know Meg a little bit better. So the the first one I'll ask you is, what's your favorite sales book of all time and why? I think it goes along with the topic, and this is probably not the first time you've heard this on this podcast, but Fanatical Prospecting is legitimately one of my favorite sales books. That was a favorite sales book as a sales development leader and has carried on to you know, leading AEs because my best account executives are amazing prospectors and have not given up that skill. What in there is maybe one major takeaway that you'd love to give people to improve their selling ability? Overall, the book just helps you think outside of the box. I think prospecting can be looked at as a very boring task. People don't necessarily look forward to it. But he just gives a lot of examples of creative ways to think outside the box and engage with people uniquely. Because at the end of the day, differentiation in your emails and your process around prospecting is key. Yeah. One thing that's come up a lot lately in conversations I've had either on the podcast or conversations with with sales leaders, you know, this topic comes up a lot, which is the mass email. I mean, everyone's already familiar with the fact that like mass blast emails don't work, but like even generic emails are working less and less. 
And it's almost as if a little bit lower volume and a little bit higher personalization is is starting to take over. Yeah, and and I can speak to that a little bit from from the perspective I have now. You know, specifically, my team works with high growth retail and consumer goods companies. So I won't name names, but if you think about any cool retail company that you're thinking of, we probably work with them. And the beauty of that is, although we have so many companies we could reach out to, I make sure my team, even just as an enterprise seller would, has a list of big bets, right? They have a list of 10 to 50, however many. And they're not sending any mass emails, none. We don't do it at all. And so really they're looking at that list. We're having sprint calls with internal teams to get a bunch of minds together and mind share on how to approach a business. And we can come in before we've even had a conversation with a person with a really strong point of view as to how we may be able to help. So that's the point, right? It's doing enough research to have a good understanding of the business, what they're going through, have they been in the news, who's important, looking at their LinkedIn, finding some common ground, and then really making it unique and also potentially sending them something really different, a physical thing that's going to catch their attention. So we do a a lot of different things within that realm. For you, like what is an example of one of those unique direct mail things that really do get the attention and help you to get meetings with with power inside of those companies you're targeting? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think we don't send Salesforce swag unless they're a customer and it's more of just, I mean, no one wants swag of a company that you're not working with. But what we like to do specifically is use customers and send not only something that they've made, but send possibly the customer story within the mug. So a good example is a Yeti, right? So a Yeti mug, Yeti has been a customer for a long time and uses a lot of our products. And so I've seen my team on a, on a cold prospect actually do a personalized mug with their initials on it uh, with Yeti. And then they put a customer story, uh, the Yeti customer story in it and send that along. That's probably the best example that I have top of mind. Uh, I'd love to just get to know you on that second question, which is the first thing that you remember selling as a kid or an early sales professional. Yeah. So I was born and raised on a farm. My dad is a famous potter. So he's a ceramic artist and I was raised, if you can envision a farm, that all the buildings are now outfitted to be showrooms and there are kilns everywhere and the old chicken coop was his workshop and they still do that today. He just had his hundredth firing and we have three kiln openings a year and have 200 people that line up outside of our house and come and buy pottery and my dad basically sells out three times a year and that's the cycle. And my sister and I, we were very encouraged to play outside and to go into the workshop and make pottery. And so we would make chunks of clay, which were basically just ashtrays, and sell them for 50 cents or $2 or whatever it was. And at every kiln opening, we would set up a card table and sell our chunks of clay and some art project that my mom had convinced us to do, everything from puzzle earrings to Easter eggs around Easter And I really do think, I mean, when you're a very young child and you have to learn to socialize in a business setting, as casual as it was at a very young age, you learn how to communicate with people. You learn how to make eye contact. You learn how to be human. You learn how to articulate yourself. 
Yeah, that's awesome. It made me think, did anyone ever try to negotiate with you to get whatever two for one or three for one? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Let's actually start when, you know, wind the clock back for you. When was the first opportunity that you had to lead a sales development team? Yeah. So I was in sales myself doing a high velocity sale, did incredibly well and realized that the new hires that they were bringing in needed training. I was working remotely and I'd come back to the office and I got sat in this wacky little corner desk around every brand new person. And I was cringing so much. It's like, is, has anyone taught these people how to have a phone conversation with a real human? And I just realized there was this huge opportunity for training and enablement within this organization. And so I worked with another woman and we created this onboarding program. And so How I ended up getting into sales leadership, this is definitely a part of the story. And then the reason why is because I became a coach. I did not become a leader first. I was leading people through their ramp period. I was their pseudo manager for the first month. And then I was complimenting their manager throughout the next three months. And it was the perfect entrance to becoming a leader because I was listening, learning. I was their trusted advisor, right? Their manager had to do all the hard conversations and the PTO and whatever else, you know, all the other things that a manager has to deal with. And I just got to listen to them. And they would, you know, we'd have one-on-ones and they would tell me the good, the bad, the ugly of their managers as well. So I got this really unique view as to what I wanted to step into and had some background on it. And so I came across NetSuite. I came across a phenomenal sales leader there who felt like a great fit to be a person in my career moving forward and realized I always wanted to live in New York City. And what was I doing at 25? Still not in New York City. And so I I took the leap of faith and became a business development manager at NetSuite in New York City. Was that before the Oracle acquisition or that was post? Yeah, there were only about 900 people there when I was when I was there. It was a great sized company for me. I mean, I had only been at a 200 person company and I wasn't sure about the transition to a large business. But I think it builds into this entire story is I think it's really nice to, if you can, go big, go small, go big, like get to know the difference because there are pros and cons to both. And I realized, particularly being new to leadership, it was so key and is key now in my transition to managing AEs that going somewhere that has systems as the first place to learn is incredibly valuable because you don't have to learn how to create the process. You get to do the process and learn the process and become a way more effective manager more quickly because you're not having to create everything from your own research and knowledge. So I found that so incredibly helpful. And I was able to bring in a lot of you know sales training and enablement stuff that had worked for me that I had created at a smaller company. And I built a lot of that into our global sales and business development training program. Since NetSuite was bigger, did they already have processes and systems developed around sales development? Yes, absolutely. At any company, it's always a work in progress. I don't care how big the company is. Every company is constantly making small tweaks to change, to just make the process better. So 
we we were always looking at it as to ways to improve it. But yes, it was definitely a, a pretty well-oiled machine and the leadership was phenomenal. So it was a perfect place to get my feet under me in leadership. When you were at NetSuite, what was sort of the evolution there? What were some of the key things you learned about how to successfully manage SDRs? Oh my gosh, my poor first team. I learned a lot with them. No, <laughs> uh, no, it was it was phenomenal. I I had a my manager. I remember so vividly the first time that he did skip levels with my team, and I thought I was going to die. I wanted to crawl under a desk and cry, but my team was so honest and I wasn't getting everything right because I think when you step into leadership for the first time and being a very process oriented person, I wanted to put process to everything, which doesn't work, right? I kind of forgot the human element of the job. I I just kind of felt like I maybe became a robot for a a short time being. And I just realized that, you know, you can't have the same one-on-ones with everyone. They're not going to be the same every single week. It is not a best practice to go through and have a list of things to talk about every time and ask them every single number and metric that you're expecting of them in every single one-on-one. That sounds awful, right? I mean, now that I think back to it, it's like, what was I thinking? Of course that didn't work. I was only able to evolve because my team did really trust me. I became a human, you know, and they would be really honest with me. And the first time, you know, they weren't necessarily being honest with me and they were transparent with my boss and he gave me all the right feedback, but it wasn't incredibly harsh. It was just, Hey, here's some things to work on. Like, we are invested in you. We know you as a person are a phenomenal leader and will continue to learn. I mean, they hired me knowing that I hadn't been leading a team. And he was really patient with me on on helping me figure out the areas that I could improve. And I ended up having three different teams at NetSuite. And gosh, by my third team, I mean, I, I feel like I had interviewed at least 50 to 100 people by that point. And was so particular on the people that I hired, the personalities, the culture that they were going to bring as a team to the company. And they are all still best friends. They say I was the angel that brought them together. And it is adorable because they're just phenomenal people. And and I just realized like, oh, I get to just be myself here. And they will love that because they can be really honest back. So we create a fun culture and of course, process is key to kind of surround a healthy environment and and productive environment. Yeah. And that, that was kind of the start. After that first skip level meeting, what do you recall was your single biggest area of professional development that you needed to work on? I think it was thinking that I could manage everybody the same and having the same expectations for every person. And also this is funny to say, and I hate to admit it, but like there was this sense of favoritism, which is not something to bring into management. And I think it was solely because certain people were more similar to me and were easy conversationalists. So it could have easily felt that favoritism was there just simply by whether it be my, my body language or mannerisms around certain people versus others. Every once in a while, I run into, this is going to be super strange, but I run into a weird salesperson. Like they're weird to me. I mean, I'm sure they're not weird to other, maybe they're not weird to other people, but I, I run into someone who just, I don't click with interpersonally, 
I think if you're interviewing people, it's sort of harder to, you know, you nest, you might not even hire those people because you, you can't even explain why. Yeah. But is there any correlation between sort of that interpersonal weirdness and sales performance? I think those people fit in the lone wolf category, right? And if I can remind myself that like, oh, right, that is a phenomenal sales piece that just keep to himself, do all the right things. If I can kind of remember that there are so many different types of personalities in sales that work, you just have to recognize that. And I have to remember, I just need to be able to manage the person, right? We don't have to be best friends. I don't expect anyone to work for me to be my best friend. That doesn't work out as well. You just have to ask them about how they work Talk to me about some leaders that you've had. Who was a huge inspiration to you? Who was detrimental to your performance? You have to understand how they work and make sure that you can work with them. Not that you're going to love sitting down in a one-on-one with them every single day. That's not as important, but you need to know that you can get productivity out of them. And that's going to be key. I mean, I'm a weird person myself in my own ways. I have a funky background. So I typically can relate with the weirdos happily. Yeah, I think I asked the question because I'm, <laughs> I think of myself as a super weirdo. But yeah, if you learn to work with people in their different styles, it can really work. But it does take adjustment and patience. And it goes back to that first skip level. It does. Because as, as painful as it was in, in the moment, I think about it all the time. And it has made me so comfortable getting feedback directly from my team. And being vulnerable enough with them and letting them be vulnerable enough with me to be able to have those conversations and to be able to say, I mean, it happened here at, you know, we were putting on an event and I, shoot, I moderate panel discussions literally once a month. And we were hosting this phenomenal retail event and I was empowering my entire team to put on this awesome event. And one of the girls on my team was going to moderate it. And I started to get a little nervous about not moderating it and putting that in someone else's hands. And it was really sweet because I kind of, I had this conversation with the girl who was going to moderate the panel and we had an honest conversation about it. And, and so it was hard initially for me to just say, okay, no, I'm, I'm really going to trust you on this because she's a phenomenal human and she is so good at her job and I know she could do it, but I just got scared. And I told her that, and we had this great conversation about it. And what ended up happening was I was like, okay, how do we both have the utmost confidence walking into that room? You're going to crush it. How do we make that happen? And so what we ended up doing is I told her, I was like, okay, have a conversation with every panelist beforehand, really get to know them. Like, I want you to be so comfortable with them up there. And so she had an hour conversation with each one of them, asked them the questions that she was going to ask, and then asked, you know, what do you think of that question? Do you like that question? Does that question relate to you? And had this phenomenal conversation with each of them. And we got raving reviews from our EVP about the event because it was so well orchestrated. And I made her do a role play with me of the entire panel before it happened, just to help her with some of the, it's such little stuff that you don't think about if you don't moderate panels all the time. It's the fillers, it's the transitions from question to question. Uh, How do you make it feel like a conversation, not just an interview? It was such an awesome experience for both of us. 
And she was so cute because she kind of came back at me pretty hard on saying, no, I'm moderating this. Right. And the next day she came up to me and was like, I'm sorry how I, I reacted to that. And I said, I'm sorry that I didn't have the utmost trust in you initially to be able to do this. <laughs> we just apologized to each other because we were so excited and so nervous and, and had a lot of feelings about it. And it was okay. And it ended up working out so, so, so well. And I feel so much more proud about the event having not done anything but run around like a chicken with my head cut off during the event to make sure everything went well. I did want to circle back around to, you know, we, we promised to talk a little bit about the difference between managing SDRs and AEs. Two things that you mentioned earlier was sort of one-on-ones as well as hiring profiles. So let's focus on those two. And just in brief, for you, what are some differences in the way you run one-on-ones now with AEs compared to how you would run one-on-ones with SDRs if you were still managing SDRs? I think running them is probably not all that different in terms of once I was running really good one-on-ones with SDRs or BDRs, like the way I kind of approach them holistically as a thing, right, is is pretty similar, but the content is completely different. In an SDR one-on-one, it is more metrics-based, but all of them, I always start my one-on-ones saying, how are you feeling? It's not, how are you doing? How's it going? Because you're going to get the same answer every time. How are you feeling? How are you feeling this week? you know, how was last week? What was great about last week? And what was really hard about last week? And I start by being completely human in all my one-on-ones. Now, I didn't get that all right prior to to this job, but that really helps. And then my first one-on-one with people when they get the job is a complete, just tell me about yourself. It's kind of like an interview, right? But just how do you work? How do you want to work together? What have been successful one-on-ones in your past? What do you want to get out of this time that we get together every single week? And that's different for everybody. Some people are like, I want to talk about my forecast. I mean, at the end of the day, I need to get updates on what they're working on. And that's going to either come in our one-on-one or we're going to have to set up other time because I have to manage a business and we have money to bring in. And that's my job. If I'm not doing that, I'm not doing my job. So they know that. We do talk a lot about forecasting, deal progression, lots of questions around all the different nitty gritty details that we need to know on if a deal is going to come in or not, which is fun. And then it's like, oh, okay, wait, we're only talking to the champion. We don't have power. Let's talk through that scenario. How do we do that? We do some role playing. And typically it's interesting because if we try to shove in all of that and then be like, oh, so tell me about what you want in your career. It isn't as genuine. So I schedule completely separate career conversations with everyone and specifically put one-on-ones on the calendar just for career conversations, which makes a big difference because you can really come in holistically and have a separate list of to-dos and follow-ups on a career conversation than you would on a typical one-on-one. So that's a little bit about how I manage them now, but I found myself in, in sales development leadership. It was much more... I mean, the human aspect was very important because they were so early in their careers and needed to understand professional acumen, like how to work well in a workplace, right? It was probably a lot more tough conversations. I manage, in my humble opinion, like the cream of the crop of salespeople at Salesforce and in the ecosystem. So they work their asses off and are, are held to a really high standard. And so we can get a lot done. What percentage of the people all park on your team are people who were internally promoted at Salesforce versus people that that came from the outside? I have eight people on my team. 
I have two external. One of the externals has a sibling at Salesforce. The other one had, oh, was is just, I knew within the first 15 seconds of the call that I was going to hire her. Uh, she was fire and she's been phenomenal. The rest are internal. And then there's one boomerang, which a boomerang is, she was an intern SDR BDR, became a direct seller for a different company and is now on my team as a seller. And she was so wanting to get back to Salesforce. She missed it so much. And so like the people, the profiles that I get to hire, and again, because our vertical is very unique at Salesforce and not the typical Salesforce path, I'm really picky about even the internal people. I mean, I don't take any BDR. I take the BDRs who would die to be on this team and are so smart. And you can tell that their minds have a capacity to learn in kind of a different way because we cover so many products and it is, I mean, the drinking from a fire hose is so real. It takes a very unique person and I expect them to be managing me through their process of figuring out how to join my team. And really like persistence. I need you to be incredibly persistent if you want to work for me. And I need you to be listening in on calls and then creating a point of view document on that call and what you learned from it and what you took away from it and how the rep did a really good job and how they needed to do a better job. Like be an AE before you're an AE to prove to me that you can step in and ramp faster than anyone else can. You answered one of my questions about like the BDR profile, but you, you, I can't let this one go, which is you said she was fire and I knew that within 15 seconds. So what, what is it about that particular rep that stood out to you? In our recruitment process, she had talked to a recruiter before talking to me. That person had promoted her and said, I think you're going to absolutely love this candidate. You know, she really matches your personality. I knew my recruiter really well. I was giving them a lot of really transparent feedback about what candidates I was leaning towards versus not. So she was honing in on her profile for me. So then by the time they get to me, you know, they've been vetted by the system. And so she came in, I mean, her energy, her tone and enthusiasm on the phone. I was thinking, okay, if I was a customer, like, would I be interested in having a conversation with this person? That is number one, right? Like, like if I do not think they will communicate well, that is a problem. So she was a great communicator. She was so ambitious. She had been through some hardship, not hardship, but the company that she was at went through a lot of turmoil and she had gone through all of that which was very similar to something that I had experienced. And I had learned more probably from that experience than I had anywhere, anywhere else, just from constantly, I mean, getting used to change, really being able to pivot and transition quickly to do what's best for the business was very clear to me. And her enthusiasm for working hard, the ability to learn quickly, she was young, but wise. I mean, she's like a puppy dog. She's like my golden retriever, right? She just loves everything about everything that she's learning. And it's still happening today. And she's 14 months in. Besides the, I, you know, I, I guess I presume that two major difference areas might lie in one-on-ones and in the hiring profile. Is there maybe one last major difference that you see between 
managing and leading SDRs versus AEs, or perhaps one major difference adjustment that you needed to make between managing SDRs and AEs? Something that I found as a big difference, maybe just in being a leader in both roles, was there's a lot you can learn in sales development from a community, books. It's very process-oriented, right? And it's not as process-oriented leading account executives. I need to do my own research by listening in on other calls and hearing how other people are negotiating through pricing. And I'm learning in a different way myself about sales. I don't find it as useful to like read sales books about negotiation. So again, I think it's that human element that is accelerated while managing AEs. And I think you do have to be really, really thoughtful about how you're managing people because you may be managing people that are older than you and have more experience than you. And so you really have to be thoughtful about your leadership style, your expectations, because you're just not going to, you know, if you're managing an enterprise sales rep that has 30 years selling experience, I'm not going to ask them for every single nitty gritty detail. I, you have to trust them. The trust piece is a little more important. If people do want to get in touch with you, how should they find you? LinkedIn is the best. I'm a big LinkedIn user. Find me. I don't dare say I'm happy to get coffee, but I do get coffee with people here and there. So I'm happy to meet if anybody's in New York City. It's always an inspiration to talk to people doing what I'm doing or that can teach me something in addition to teaching them something. Although I don't manage sales development reps anymore, I still love to be engaged in the community. And so we have this meetup in New York City. It meets on the first Tuesday of every month. It's a great place to come and meet some people doing what you're doing and learn some great tips and tricks. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.